RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. It's Wednesday morning. That's our legal hub morning here at Reality Check Radio. It's when we go all legal. And Katie Ashby Coppins is with me. No Nick Kearney. Where's Nick gone, Katie? Oh, he's um, he's currently hit the uh, skies and he is, I think, winging his way to Europe, um, possibly while he still can. You can connect on the planes these days. He could have found himself a quiet seat. <laughs> Look, I'm sure that he possibly can. I, he could even, uh, well, it could be that he's already in Europe and it's some ungodly hour, like four o'clock in the morning. Who knows? Oh, gotta take We've given him a few weeks off. No, that's fair enough. Usually he sits there. You don't see it, listeners, but he has that background of the of the beach with the the palm sort of, you know, moving in the breeze. I mean, that's all you need. You don't even need to go anywhere anymore. Okay. So uh, Katie Ashby Coppins is with me on Legal Hub. And uh, Katie, we were talking with Sue Gray, I think it was last Friday, and she was telling us about the OIAs that she had come back, which seemed to take forever for her to get uh, information that if you were listening at the time, folks, you'll remember us talking about to do with uh, COVID response management, etc. The thing that surprised me is the length of time it took for her to get hold of that information. Mm. And look, I think I think you said seven months. I recall hearing 16, but I did hear it. Um, I was on a fast playback, so it could be that I'm mistaken and it was seven months. But it could have been eight ir- times irrelevant. <laughs> irrelevant. It was still a very long Twice time. Speed. Yeah, yeah. It should never take that long, though. That's not – those aren't Re- the rules, are they? Realistically, no, it shouldn't. Um, it's uh, – ordinarily 20 working days, but uh, there are tools and mechanisms that um, the government departments or public bodies utilise to, I guess, effectively kick the can down the road. Um, Is that because they know that the information, because some things I'm sure they're happy to let go in days, no problem, but there are other things that that they have to sit there and really think about how this is going to come across and, and kind of shape how they let the information out to minimise any fallout. Yeah, correct. And so I thought it might be useful just to give an overview of the Official Information Act because uh, most democratic countries have an ability for citizens to request information of their public um, organisations. And, um, you know, that's relevant to a couple of things. Sue's um, documents that she talked about last week, some documents I've spoken about on this show, uh, but also I think uh, Marie's catching up with Naomi Wolf later in today's segment. So uh, she's also got some documents that respond to um, an FOI request, which is like our Official Information Act in in New Zealand. Yeah, that's going to be interesting for Mm. sure. A lot of people are looking forward to that. So... Going after official information, is it is it an ordeal? I mean, how much of a job? Is it something that the average person can consider doing? Absolutely. And look, I, I implore everybody to, and uh, you might have to be a bit tenacious, uh, and I'll step through some of the requirements. Uh, there's also a fabulous site, uh, which I tap into every now and again, called fyi.org.nz. Uh, don't quote me, but I think the Herald might run that. And that's a really useful site where people can actually make their own uh, FYI applications to the relevant state uh, or government departments. Uh, and the uh, site will track the progress the, and include the reply. So often you can go and see if somebody's already made a request that you're interested in 
through that site. And it's got full text searching capabilities. Um, so that's fyi.org.nz. Um, and it's really useful. Um, I've made a few requests under it. I find it nice and clean. Um, that's very engaging. It gives me a prompt. It seems to give the government department a prompt if they haven't responded. Um, and it also you know, describes whether or not a request is long overdue um, or is outstanding. So it's quite a useful tracking system uh, just to see the status of a particular FOI request. Is there a way or, or a good way or a, the best way of of writing these things out, how to make the request as, as a standard kind of thing? Or do you have to choose your language carefully, be very surgical? Yeah. How do you go about that? You do have to be a little bit surgical. Um, the way I go about writing them is um, I first, and yeah, not surgical, just particular. So um, the first thing I do is when I wish to request a document or a suite of documents, um, I first identify the documents uh, by clearly articulating what I want, uh, especially around dates and topics. So I might write to the Ministry of Health and say, I want uh, all of your documents on monkeypox that were considered from June 2022 when it first uh, was described as a pandemic of importance um, to September 2022. And that is concise. It is clear what the subject matter is about, and it's clear which department I've requested it from. And then the only other thing that you need to make sure that you've done is that you've identified the correct department, because the departments often utilise um, misdirected requests um, to their favour. So they might not let you know until the last working day that's due that it was the wrong department, uh, and that they clarify the department that you should have requested the documents from. So that's another tool in their repertoire. Um, I do find that a number of the OIA departments, um, that's the Official Information Act request departments, do try their best to satisfy and provide the documents. Um, you've got to think about who's probably working in that in those teams. It's probably a first-year lawyer or someone in their final year of law that's got to find the documents, talk to the relevant team within the department, um, and then to ensure that they've provided the documents that are the subject of the request. That's really important. And then the final step you need to do is you just need to make sure that uh, you state that the documents are requested um, pursuant to the Official Information Act 1982. So sort of three clear steps. Documents you're interested, clearly articulated, subject matter, date, range, a key. Um, second, identify the department or public body. And then three, make sure you specify that the request is made under the Official Information Act 1982. If you leave the last bit off, will they not do anything? I think they'll probably use it to kick the can down the road. Oh, right. The reference yeah. to the statute means that uh, the time frame starts ticking from the date it's submitted and the government department or public body is required to respond within 20 working days. So what you've got to try and do is head off any of those sort of delaying tactics or minimise the opportunity for delay and them them exploiting those moments. Yeah, correct. And if you want to see um, requests that have been successful, then 
the benefit of this fyi.org.nz website is that you can go and have a look at the website and you can see uh, the requests that have been made and you can see whether or not they've been successful or not um, and, and some of the reasons why things might be uh, refused or delayed and your request might already have been answered. Um, you know, that's also making that site really useful. So why would it have taken Sue so long to get hold of those documents? Because they obviously weren't hard to find. They're all there sitting there, you know, um, and it seemed like just such a long time. Yeah, look, there is a plethora of reasons often given um, as to why there is a delay. Uh, Sometimes there's simply an acknowledgement and they say that they're looking. Uh, I don't know uh, in Sue's particular situation why there was such a delay in her getting the documents, but it's certainly a technique the government departments use to avoid giving people documents they've requested. And that can be um, a, a time game. And they can also, I mean, they know that the ombudsman is busy and can take up to eight months to a year to consider any application made where information has been refused to be provided under a request time can soften things. I mean, if if some of Sue's documents that she's received were received back when um, she had bought the first of the COVID-19 mRNA product applications, uh, I think back in 2021, those documents may potentially have been um, damaging for that case. Um, And that was a judicial review. Uh, And so perhaps with the benefit of time, those documents uh, only coming to light now, you know, people were wanting to forget the last three years, not really drudge up the past. Well, you think of these issues because we know it's a very controversial area and that's obvious and you could see why people would drag the chain perhaps. Correct. But another useful tool and one that I often rely on is if I can see there's posturing by the government department for not providing me the documents. I'll actually request all the documents pertaining to the consideration of my Official Information Act request. And that can be particularly telling because what you can then get is you can get um, considerations uh, and comments that are written down as to the reason why you're not getting this material. So that's also a particularly powerful additional request if you're getting mucked around. So there are ways of playing this game, is what you're saying? Absolutely, absolutely. And all I could suggest is, you know, simple, most articulate. Um, If it means that you end up making multiple um, information requests, then so be it. But a 15-page information request with, you know, 23 different questions, that's going to see a slow response if it sees a response at all. Um, And there are multiple reasons for the government being able to deny provision of documents under the Act. Um, Some some can be as spurious as there's good reason to withhold, Um, that making available the information would be contrary to the provisions of a, a specified enactment. Um, it could constitute a contempt of court, um, which I thought was particularly interesting. Will soon be publicly available. So one of the requests that I've done for a whole lot of data, um, they've refused it on the basis that they're getting to providing the documents publicly. Um, but as to when that might be, who knows? Yeah, how long's that? Correct. Um, but it's certainly ground for refusal. 
the information doesn't exist, which I think was one of the answers that Sue had received in respect of uh, legal considerations into an aspect of the public health response to the pandemic, I think was one of them. Uh, one of the ones is the task is too large or is not clearly articulated enough. And so that's what I mentioned before, you know, a 15 page request with hundreds of specific questions will not necessarily result in a good response to your questions. So I would probably break that up into much smaller bite-sized pieces. And often that's the best way to eat an elephant, um, a bite at a time. And then the last one is the request is frivolous or vexatious. Uh, and I could perceive that might happen where you've got somebody that's just hounding a particular government department for documents that have been advised not to exist. Um, but I'm, I'm not quite sure of mm. what other examples might exist there. You mentioned the ombudsman before. Uh, mm. are, they, are they lacking capacity, that office? It does sound that like they're busy. And certainly the people that I know have taken matters to the ombudsman regarding um, Official Information Act requests um, and unsatisfactory response is an additional period of time. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of aware of eight months to a year being an ordinary time based on the particular um, appeals that I've heard of. Not um, That might not be all of them, but certainly eight months to a year is the time frame that I'm aware of. Um, so well, you've almost but, forgotten about what you wrote to them about. Well, that's exactly that right. It's pretty hard to be tenacious for that long. Yeah, you got to hang on. Um, and then you sometimes you've got what you've asked. So um, you know that's why the other, it's also useful to you know, keep really concise with the subject matter um, and the topic, and really knowing why you're going after that particular bit of information, um, and then not forgetting. What about, uh, I noticed in, in Sue's documents, the ones I saw, that there were redacted areas. Mm. Can you challenge redactions? Uh, you could challenge redactions. So ordinarily a redaction will be applied where um, one of the reasons I've just described above is given and a redaction is applied where there is a particular part of a statement or a, a section of a document uh, which is um, withheld or they don't want you to see it because it um, is uh, subject to one of the reasons for not providing the information under the Official Information Act. But then uh, you do get a situation, well, you know, this is probably a first-year lawyer that's applying these redactions. Um, if we took these matters to court and we sought discovery of these documents, those redactions will most likely have to be removed because that information doesn't... Um, you know, the Official Information Act reasons for refusal um, are not uh, ordinarily able to be replied, relied on in um, the discovery process in a court proceedings. So, um, you know, there's there's ways and means, but certainly just as you would challenge a refusal, you would you could potentially challenge the redactions. That would probably be harder um, to get yeah. across the line because it usually shows that there's some consideration given as to why that information was redacted and yeah just so people know redactions essentially big black marks um it looks like someone's taken a vivid to particular areas of a paragraph so that you know you can't see what's behind those particular words um and often the reason for refusal or the redaction is given yeah because you wonder if you know the, the little bit sitting under the redaction is just that little nuance that could give you a lot more direction in mm. understanding 
you know, the bigger picture from a document. Absolutely. And um, I've certainly seen some documents where uh, putting two side by side, the area that's not been redacted is a bit of a eureka moment or, uh, well, it would have been good to know that at the time. So, you know, you you, you take your chances. There are tools available, as you've mentioned. And you've given some pretty uh, clear advice about how to go about these things. Um, and uh, you got to give it your best shot, I suppose. So when you when you do these things, when you yeah. do an OIA, don't uh, bog yourself down in, in too many requests, too many words. Just cut to the chase. Exactly yeah. right. All right. Well, uh, let's um, move on. And we're staying kind of on this, uh, this topic. Um, we had in our news because we do the international news first thing on the program. Uh, I think it was um, either yesterday morning or the morning before, maybe yesterday morning, that a judge in Texas, federal judge, has come out and told the FDA to, come on, hurry up. You've got to release mm. a lot more documents a lot quicker. Remember, these are the documents that were going to take 75 years to come out in total, I think. First, am I right? Yeah, correct. So, um as I mentioned before, most democratic nations uh, have a ability for a citizen to request documents from the government or a public authori- uh, public organisation. And in uh, the United States, uh, we've got um, the Freedom of Information Act, uh, which is very much like our Official Information Act. And a, a group of doctors requested from the Food and Drug Administration the 450,000-odd pages of documents that Pfizer submitted um, in favour of its emergency use uh, application for the commonality vaccines for 16s and above. And back in uh, no, uh, sorry, February of 2022, a Texan judge federal court judge said, no, it's not acceptable that you spend, that you only review and release 500 pages a day. That's going to take over 75 years um, for you to provide all of the documents, the subject of that application. You need to provide it a lot quicker. You've got to resource up and you've got to get these documents um, and delivered in much larger tranches. So um, that's what I imagine that Naomi um, Wolf and Marie will probably touch on some of that later on this afternoon. Naomi Wolf has um, pulled together an amazing and very significant team of um, uh, lawyers and specialists and doctors to review all of the material that uh, Pfizer submitted to the FDA and FDA considered. And they've got they've been delivering this in really large tranches. And I think each month we get another significant tranche of documents and generally. Um, the uh, news articles and Dr. John light up as you know more of these um, incredible documents come to light. Um, and the reason why the uh, <laughs> I think I think I can say it's ironic is that it took less than eight months for the FDA to approve the Cominati, uh, the Pfizer mRNA product um, for 16s and above. Yet it's going to take them 75 years to produce the documents. So again. We're seeing a government department utilising this time excuse. Uh, they're saying they re- need to review every single page for reasons information might not be able to be given up under the FOI uh, Act, you know, redacted. Um, and they've been told that that's simply not acceptable. Uh, I the, think he said democracy dies in darkness. I think it was the term that the judge used. 
Absolutely. And that certainly gave me such a, um, I felt like maybe democracy is not dead um, after reading that. Um, and what where this is relevant, again, is the application that was made and decided upon by this Texas judge in the last couple of days is in respect to the documents the FDA considered in relation to uh, Pfizer's COVID vaccine for the 12 to 15 years. That was the extension of the common RT product to this age cohort. And look, I understand that they um, approved that within the space of a couple of weeks. So um, despite the FDA's insistence on needing 23.5 years, and you've got to scratch your head, there's already a precedent of less than a year ago of the FDA being refused um, a unmentionable length of time to provide these documents. I mean, they don't even get that amount of time for locking documents down in relation to the JFK murder and uh, what goes on in Roswell. So um, it's quite incredible that, you know, the FDA even tried it on, but then to try it on again this year in respect of the um, the extension to the uh, 12 to 15 year old age group, I just don't know whether or not their lawyers wanted to um, get rich, but it was a precedent. It was an application that they were doomed to fail, um, given you know that a judge the year before, and I'm not sure if it was even the same judge, said, no, that length of time is totally unacceptable. Sounds like a bit of a panic move to me, given the age group involved. The information might not be too pretty, and then you've got people like Naomi Wolf and her team that are just pulling apart all of this stuff. Yeah, so look, it was 75 years to produce the documents, the subject of the uh, Pfizer application for emergency use for the adult products 16 and above. It was 23.5 years that they said it was going to take for the extension. I think it's just a try on. Um, but you've got okay. to, yep. I really do struggle with this, given that this is a product that they rolled out to the nation. And so it, it beggars belief that they can refuse to grant access to the very material that they relied upon to make their decision to make these products available. Um, you know, surely there has to be some sort of obligation of open transparency when it comes to, you know, these kinds of drugs. And it it terrifies me the thought that these products were uh, approved in the way that they were under extreme emergency. They're a new class of drug. They're being um, assessed for approval, uh, huge volumes of documents, and what's coming out is really not pretty. And I can understand why they would probably want to hold them close to their chest. But the fact is, is that they had they read the documents, which you assume they have to have had having received them, that they knew a lot more about the potential issues with these products, which we're seeing, unfortunately, play out um, in the populations. Yeah, because the approval on those documents was an eye blink compared to the time of releasing them. Correct, correct. Releasing them to the public that they, yeah. um, you know, had administered to the public. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it, it, it really is incredible. It will be, no doubt, um, a movie, it will be no doubt reflected upon a movie, the scratch yeah. of horror head. movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, look, absolutely. And, and I'm sure what Naomi Wolf has to say later today will um, have everybody shaking their heads. And it's not about us, but that information should have been known surely by our people as well if they were. Yeah, doing correct. Their job. So, because um, they signed I a contract with 
with that company? Correct, correct. So um, they signed signed multiple contracts with the um, company, I understand. Um, So essentially the same application um, and documents in the support of the application that went to the TGA, which is the Therapeutic Goods um, Administration in Australia, also went to Bedsafe in New Zealand. Um, The suite of documents, I understand, um, are virtually the same. Most of those documents are the documents that appeared in um, the application to the Food and Drug Administration by um, Pfizer in the States. And, you know, we've had a lot of people publicly comment on documents that were made available saying, I've got concerns here um, about the very documents that went to these um, government agencies and concerns should have arisen in the documents they received and yet they've just closed ranks, don't wish to provide them, don't wish to talk about them and had there not been these emergency use or provisional consent um, or provisional approval, uh, special approvals that were um, made available to uh, under the respective Medicines Act in those three countries, you know, these drugs would never have been approved, like never. They fail on so many different counts and it's virtually impossible to say, oh, we can apply the special rules we have around vaccines to these products. Uh, no, you can't. Then they're, they're not vaccines. It's just that you change the definition of vaccines to get them to fit within the special approval uh, as to why you now don't need to do all of these X, Y, Z tests. So, look, it's incredible. Hmm. It really is. The whole package is incredible. You, you said contracts because we all think there's a contract. I know we're hmm. getting slightly off the topic of OIAs and um, freedom of information. I guess it's related. Everyone talks about the contract. Multiple contracts? Yeah, look, um, I haven't seen them. They were um, subject to provision in the kids' case um, in New Zealand that I was involved in, and only the lawyers were allowed to see them. Um, They signed undertakings that they wouldn't um, disclose them. Uh, When David uh, Jones, uh, Casey, went through uh, some of the provisions in the contract, he did so in a way that um, took the judge through the wording because the judge was allowed to see them as well. Uh, but he didn't uh, expressly explain or outline or expand upon what was stated in those contracts. He just alluded to it and took the judge to particular provisions um, with respect to uh, you know whether or not this was, I guess, experimental from memory. But uh, as I understood it, there was three, possibly four different versions of supply agreements Uh, perhaps there was a main head contract and then multiple others as you know more doses needed to be provided we signed up for more (laughs) or different age groups so um there was a change in december i think 2021 to the mixture in the vaccines and separate approval was required for that uh so perhaps a separate contract needed to be provided or separate supply agreement was necessary to be entered into for, you know, the children's uh, version of the products right. um, and the like. But again, I haven't seen them. I don't no, know. I enough. can just yeah. I can just allude to them of what yeah. I'm. I, I just of. mentioned it because uh, I, you know everyone talks about the contract, but it sounds like there's more to it than that. Yeah, there's multiple contracts, um, and uh, as I understand it, look, I think there's plenty of sites out there that um, have available the various countries' um, contracts that were signed with these big pharmaceutical organisations. And 
Um, the wording's very similar. You don't need to be a rocket science to be able to compare yeah, two right. provisions to one another. Yeah. Um, you know, people talk a lot about the indemnity that was granted by the government to um, a pharmaceutical company, given that these products were supplied under urgency. And I think that that's, you know, um, naturally a commercial provision. You know, what, what could be made of it? I don't know, but I definitely know that um, some of the pharmaceutical companies didn't supply these products to countries that refused to sign the indemnity. So if I did an OIA requesting the contract, <laughs> what would happen? It's been refused. I have seen a few exchanges on that. I can't tell you exactly right this second um, as to what the grounds for refusal were, but I could refresh and come back to that next week if you wanted. But the um, chances of, of getting that would be virtually nil, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, look, if access was only limited to the lawyers on the basis of an undertaking that it wouldn't be shared in the kids' case, I think there's uh, not a snowball's chance at hell no, that anyone will be able to get it. Um, I thought I'd just ask, just to see. All right. Anything more to say about official information and freedom of information? Yeah, actually, this is a bit of a homage to Nick, given he's not here, um, but because he's got a bit of a... Um, a, a bit of a passion for it um, uh, in, in his memory or his absence, um, could I say. Um, another good reason for discussing OIAs today um, is that um, the Radio New Zealand has just invented a new reason for not providing documents, um, the subject of the Official Information Act request, um, and that's on the grounds of none other than tikanga. Oh, that one again. That nugget. So that's particularly interesting because we're seeing here a radio, um, a government-funded uh, radio station uh, refusing to uh, provide uh, documents requested that were the subject um, and appropriately the subject of an official information act on the basis that, um, yeah, Tikanga um, applies to the radio organisation and its employees. Okay, so, so how, incredible. how does that work? I'm picking that it actually doesn't work. But how are they trying to claim that? Look, it might be probably pretty useful if I give you a bit of context and then we can have a have a chat more about it. So sure, go. Um, Radio New Zealand was recently asked to provide a transcript or copy of what Justice Minister Kitty Allen said at the farewell um, for her fiance Manny Dunlop um, after what Minister Allen said she was required to apologise. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah. Miss Dunlop was leaving New Zealand. I think you might know Miss um, Dunlop from your time at Radio I, I know her as a, a colleague but some time ago, but not a close colleague, but I do know of her and I know her work, yep. Okay. Well, Miss Dunlop was leaving Radio New Zealand after 10 years. Um, she was unsuccessful um, at getting the morning report job Um Arguably, emotions were high. Who'd uh, want that job? Sorry, I just had to say that. <laughs> Who'd want that? Apparently, everyone wants a breakfast show, Paul. Okay, well, I don't know about that one. Okay, carry on. Yeah, words stated by um, our own justice minister. You would think words stated of a person in such a position um, for which they then had to later apologise probably satisfied one of the purposes of the Official Information Act 
um, which is to promote the accountability of ministers of the Crown and officials and thereby enhance the respect for the law and to promote the good government of New Zealand. Um, so bang on point, good reason to request that information, good reason to supply it, you would think. But? Well, interestingly, a portion of um, Minister Allenson's uh, Alan's speech, sorry, uh, was provided. What was said and what was provided was pretty bad. So uh, beggars belief what hasn't been provided and how much worse it could get. So let's be clear, it wasn't provided by Radio New Zealand itself claiming tikanga, which is Maori sort of law, right? Correct, Maori common law. Yeah. So since when did Radio New Zealand have any connection with Maori common law? Well, when could you rely on it as a reason for not giving information requested under the Official Information Act when there is no such um, ability to rely on such a reason for refusal to give information under the Official Information Act? Um, it's a try-on. But that's what Nick and I have been talking about with Tikanga is it's essentially unwritten Māori common law which um, is being utilised uh, selectively and um, potentially conveniently to make a decision work in a way where ordinary common law, one that is written down, um, one that's articulated in case law, um, is inconvenient to the outcome. Yeah, because just on a common sense level, an ethical level, you can see the the potential conflict. Someone gets a, a job like that. Inevitably, actually, they could be they could end up throwing hard questions at that very person. Yeah, look, potentially. I mean, I'm happy to read out the words that. Oh, let's of, hear them. Let's hear of, them. Of, of what um, Minister Allen did say at the leaving party for her potentially disgruntled de facto, and you can make up your mind uh, about those words, and then perhaps. Um, you could wonder what was missing. Um, okay, yeah. So two paragraphs of what Minister Allen said uh, were, were provided, and there's a segment, I'm not sure how long that was, wasn't. From the version I've seen, there is no redactions in the two paragraphs that I've got. Um, so it appears that maybe a paragraph or two has just simply not been supplied at all. But I haven't seen the exact transcript. Uh, so... Radio New Zealand declined to release a full transcript, but did release two paragraphs which stated this. There is something within this organisation that has to be looked at. Now, I know that you said that you would pick up that, the widow, that money left. It is not for just you. It is for your senior leadership team to pick up. It's for your senior leadership team to pick up. It's for your boards to pick up that there is something within this organisation that will not and has not been able to keep Māori talent, and that is a question that I think deserves some deep reflection. We are looking at these two, and we are looking at this organisation and how it treats its talent. Want to know? She doesn't need to do it. It's not her role to carry that anymore. So it's to this room and the people within this place to grow and nurture, show that they have a viable future within this organisation, that you can come in as an intern and that you can get to the top spot, not just because you are Māori, but because you have trained them well, you have nurtured them well. Okay, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a few we's in there. We are doing this, we are doing that. Presumably that means 
Well, who? I wonder. Mm, look, it's a pretty severe slating to the senior leadership team and the board. Um, there's a lot you could read between the lines. It's, you know, I'm not sure that she didn't get the role because she was uh, Māori or a female or otherwise. I can't imagine how that could have been any basis. And look, it's very hard to um, to critically question, and I'm not a journalist, but I imagine it's very hard to critically question anybody if you have such a, a conflict of interest. You know, how does... Um, how do you interview the Minister of uh, Justice uh, when she's your partner? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not aware of any situation where someone has successfully um, been able to put that conflict of interest out of the way. And, you know, we have rules around it in the legal arena where we can't act in certain situations where there is a conflict of interest. And while it's an ethical consideration, this one I suspect is a blatantly obvious one. And I imagine that um, Minister... Ellen takes um, Ms Dunlop to many a um, uh, function and event. You know, these people will probably become friends before, you know, and I just think it makes it very hard for questioning. So, look, there's a lot to be said. It would be very interesting to know what the missing paragraph or parts of the statement um, are. And let's be honest, this is a leaving party for crying out loud. <laughs> Australia and New Zealand, though. <laughs> uh, and that language uh, that that we did hear that you read out, that we are looking at this, we are looking at you kind of thing, I mean, that's sort of, you know, waving the finger around a bit, isn't it? It's threatening. I think it's totally inappropriate from a minister at a leaving party of their fiancé from the organisation. Um, and it's threatening. And, you know, it's the person that's paying you, essentially. Hmm. Um, wow. It is incredible. Okay. And um, someone, someone has OIA'd the rest, surely? Yes, correct, correct. And um, I will keep you posted on any more of that. But look, it is worrisome just that Tikang has been used to refuse provision of this. There, there's a creep, right? There's a creep going on here. It's creeping to other things. Yeah, look, I don't think it's just creeping. I think it's coming in great. Um, um, it's being yeah, used well, more and more. Yeah. yeah, we've got Air New Zealand granting, um, you know, the CEO granting return of a body from Sydney to Auckland um, on the basis of tikanga, uh, going against policies that the airline had for not allowing a body to be transported with a family relation. Rather, you know, it had to be transported with a suitably qualified undertaker um, or someone that had that role, you know, that policy if, if it wasn't in fact policy being um, rewritten or ignored on the basis of tikanga. Uh, we've seen an application for not paying repaying a debt on the basis of tikanga. I like um, that one. <laughs> fortunately the um you know the judge said it didn't apply in this case, but they still wrote sufficient words around it to say it might be able to be considered. And now we've got a government owned radio station saying that it's not providing the documents um or, or, or the statements because it's tikanga and they are there to, yeah, it, they, they rely on um, refusal to provide this information on the basis that they wish to protect the tikanga of Radio New Zealand and its employees. So really quite incredible. I'm speechless um, on this and I really look forward to seeing how it's going to play out.
All right. Just to finish up, my time for time now, judicial review against Minister for Climate Change over regulations. The applicants say breach the Climate Change Response Act. Yeah, look, I'm going to keep an eye on this case. I don't um, know awfully that much about it, but I do like to keep an eye and, and let people know of the cases that are going through courts. And certainly this one has been lodged. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be around uh, whether or not the regulations are in accordance with law. We've got some really interesting things happening under um, climate change. And um, I think it's one that's going to be uh, hot to trot. We have talked about judicial reviews in previous shows um, and just the nature of them being slightly different from your ordinary proceedings against a plaintiff defendant. This is consideration uh, the judge to consider whether or not the decisions made by the government was reasonable. Here we're saying, or the plaintiff group, which is Lawyers for Climate Action New Zealand, are saying, no, um, you know, the regulations that you've come up with under this legislation are at odds with the legislation. So you need to go back and rethink that. All right. So we'll keep an eye on that. We'll keep an eye on all of them, but we'll keep an eye on that too. All right. Well, that was interesting. Like I say, never a dull moment in the law. Who would have thought? Yeah, who would have thought? (laughs) Katie Ashby Coppins, thank you for being on our legal hub. And um, one person down, we've got Nick uh, off overseas. How long is he away for? Uh, Four weeks, I think. Okay, well, that'll go. Um, So, look, I don't know. We might even be able to get some uh, special guests on. Um, oh yeah, so right. That yeah, yeah. You're not just having to listen to my dulcet tones for oh, the whole right, uh, for the whole right. time. So, um, no, look, thoroughly enjoyable morning. Thank you very much, Paul, for the opportunity to be on with you. Thank you, Katie, and we'll do it again next Wednesday. Great, sounds good. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.